I remember thinking how futile of a, of a, of an operation this was, right? But that's, he would keep telling me that's the, that's the mindset of a businessman. You gotta be wondering how am I doing versus the competition? Mm -hmm. And I just thought, I was like, this is so futile because you don't get anything extra by looking at what the other motel is doing. You get something extra by figuring out how do I get another human being to walk into me? The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to the dirt. Today's guest is on a mission to change the way that the world views mathematics. With a third of high school students behind in math, he has decided that he's going to be part of the solution to this problem. So for the last six years, that's exactly what he's been doing with his company, Elephant Learning, helping more than 150,000 students learn nearly two years of math in a few short months. So in today's discussion, we're going to talk all about multiplication, multiplication of business value, multiplication of team members as a company grows from a million to five million and above, multiplication of, well, math for obvious reasons. So all about multiplication, all about value. And let's just jump in with Dr. Aditya Nagrath, founder and CEO of Elephant Learning. Let's go ahead. Hi, and, thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, welcome, welcome. This is uh, it's great to have you here. And let's just go ahead and start with, you know, how we got here, how you got here with Elephant Learning. Sure. So I was running a contract software engineering company, and I joined uh, EO. And in EO and the learning events, there was a lot of uh, different speakers who were talking about double and triple bottom line companies. And the first one that I went to, they had this guy. I grew, founded the plastic bank there. And the plastic bank was interesting because uh, the way it worked was that the CEO had seen on television uh, the problem about the plastic in the Pacific Ocean being the size of Texas. And he just thought, there's got to be a way to monetize that. Like if I could figure out a system of monetization, then maybe I could unlock it. And I think this is interesting because it's a problem that like typically... Uh, the common person would look to government to solve, right? Like we should solve this and they would do it by a political movement. But this guy devised a, a system where people in India picked up the plastic as it washed ashore and deposited it in the plastic bank. And it turns out that paying the people to do that, they were earning more than they would earn in the shops in town. So there was also a social impact. So it was a measurable impact on the environment in pounds of plastic pulled out of the ocean a measurable societal impact, and then a measurable bottom line. It's a $200 million company, at least at that time. And if you think about it, the system was completely devised so that as they pick up the plastic, everybody wins. So they would recycle the plastic. They made money. The people made money for doing it. And we pulled the plastic out of the ocean. So I kind of started thinking in those types of terms, in the terms of like, if I was presented with a problem, that normally we would look to government to solve. Could I devise 
a business around it so that like we could found an organization that was self-sustaining around that. And uh, about a year and a half later, I was presented with that opportunity. A professor of mine had approached me and they were looking for a National Science Foundation grant. And the grant was about partnering with the business and bringing National Science Foundation research to the public. So kind of makes sense from a government standpoint, right? Like we've funded the research and now let's find a way to fund it so that human beings could turn it into something people can use. And so like what they had at that time was games for children, preschool and kindergarten. And the the, the NSF research was activities that uh, first graders, second graders, third graders, fourth graders to do that are now known to be effective for teaching mathematics conceptually, which means as a language, right? We're talking about, can they understand the definition of what addition is? Can they apply addition? Can they apply multiplication to solve a problem when they see it in the real world? So that's, that's how they, quote unquote, determine understanding. Mm-hmm. And initially, when I looked at this, I said, you know, I don't see how we're going to do this. And the main barrier, in my opinion, was that the business plan we came to be with was we're going to try to sell this to the schools. And I mean, that market is extremely crowded. And on top of that, it tends to be a relationship business of which I had none. I asked him, do you have any relationships with schools? No. So I said, so yeah, I don't see how we're going to do it. And honestly, I don't see children trying to purchase games for mathematics as a, uh, as a thing for them to do, right? Because like now you enter the realm of, can we make the stuff that's called schoolwork fun, right? That's the mission. Yeah. And what, what the professor replied was basically that four out of five students start kindergarten unprepared for the kindergarten curriculum. And... I mean, I had a hard time understanding what that meant. I mean, I asked him, I'm like, what do you even mean by that? Because like kindergarten is supposed to be the beginning. And he says, well, kindergarten starts at counting to, twi- uh, counting to 20 and the prerequisite is counting to 10. So I'm looking at him I'm saying, you're telling me that these students can't count to 20. And he's like, well, no, they can't count to 10. And I said, I'm having a hard time believing that. These are five-year-olds, like, help me understand this. And what he said was that, well, the way kindergarten thinks about counting to 10 is give me 10 things, the student's able to slide over 10 things, and they're able to stop on 10. And what most parents think is counting to 10 is saying the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And I looked at it, and, I, and so it's, now it's like clicking. So what I said before about like, we're teaching mathematics as a language. That's what they mean, right? In one case, you understand what 10 is. In the other case, you could just be saying the words out loud. Right. And so I said, okay. So they come in with this understanding gap to speak, speaking with the teacher. The next best piece of research that he shows me is uh, basically saying that by income level, the, the percentile which you enter the education system in kindergarten happens to be the percentile at which you exit the education system coming out of uh, 12 or 12 years old, I think is what the, what the charge was showing. And there was very little bit movement up. The top income groups were kind of moving up. And all of this happened along income lines, meaning that four out of five students start kindergarten unprepared for kindergarten curriculum. They did that by 
by income quartiles, I'm sorry, 20%, 20%. It was the top 20% income earners whose students were entering prepared. And the reason why is because they can send their students to preschool. And in preschool, they ensure that the student can meet the prerequisite of counting to 10 before sending them along to kindergarten. And when you look at the two pieces of data, basically what it says is that if your student comes in and is not able to understand the teacher, then they don't do really well in our educational system. But if they came in and they were able to understand the, uh, the teacher, well, then, yeah, they actually tended to move up over time. They tended to learn. And I didn't need a lot of fancy research at that point. Philosophically speaking, that's true. So you have to be able to understand the teacher for it to be effective. So at that point, I turned to him and I said, okay, well, this, what you're talking about, I can sell that. I can sell that to parents because if what you're saying is that these students are behind in an 80% ratio, that means most students are behind. And in fact, it means that there's nothing effective on the market for remediating them either, because if there were, people would just be using that. So we set out to create a system with the goal of being effective. We made a mission. The mission was empowering children with mathematics. And we chose that for two reasons. One, almost half of all students in the United States uh, report having math anxiety by first grade. And that's 50% of Americans report having math anxiety. And that means the number is a little bit higher too, because what it is, is that they are self-reporting anxiety around math. And so that means then there's a percentage of people who maybe have anxiety around math, but they're not willing to say that. So the number is higher. And so like what it is, is that what we're trying to do is we're trying to give this power and we're trying to do that through teaching them mathematics. And the methodology is, is can we determine their level of understanding and build their language very quickly from there. Now, if you want proficiency, meaning like, do you want to see the students see two numbers and add them or multiply them quickly? There are so many tools out there for that. But getting them to understand it, in my opinion, is quite a bit more important because if I memorize my multiplication tables, but I'm not able to use multiplication to solve a problem, then what was the point? Right, right. So before you continue, let me just make sure I got a couple of these, what I would call alarming stats, correct? So so four out of five kids, 80%, enter kindergarten behind in math, right? Yeah. Over a third of high school students are behind in math. 75% of high school students are not proficient in high school mathematics. That's a 2019 statistic. I think they just started to release statistics from after the pandemic, but... To be honest with you, like if you didn't understand the teacher in the classroom, understanding the teacher by Zoom is much harder. So, so closer to closer to eight, closer to that eighty percent number actually in terms of high school students that are behind in math, right? Yeah, and then yeah. and then there's there's one that you and I have talked about before that flows all the way through into into college around STEM majors, right? Where, right, I think it's something like seven out of ten or seventy percent of STEM majors switch to a major with less math. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I looked this all one the way up. It was, it was 69%. 69 yeah. So kindergarten all the way through college, this, this is just a, a, a problem that needs attention. Yes, yes. Because as the world's becoming more mathematically oriented, and even now that things that are happening, like 
the, the challenge is, is that people look at it and say, oh, well, the computer can do it for me. But the challenge is, is that what mathematics is, is determining truth philosophically, starting around the numbers, but then talking about it more abstractly. Yeah. So when you take a look at something like uh, coding or software engineer, and if you look at the statistics for that, 90% of parents want their children to be able to code. They think that, like, yeah, if you're a coder, you'd have a job. And the challenge is, is that coding is algebra. So most of the students, when you're talking about 80% or 69% of the STEM majors, you know, kind of not moving out of it. The reason why is because science, technology, engineering, it's all using mathematics at the algebra levels or higher, right? When you're talking about physics, you're typically using differential equations. When you're talking about chemistry, you can start using those as well. Modeling populations in biology or differential equations. So like, I've been asked by people, well, when are you going to use calculus ever? Well, I mean, if you're not a STEM major, maybe it's harder. If you go down to Wall Street, they got these things called options. They call them derivatives. They call them derivatives for a reason. They behave exactly like a mathematical derivative. So if you could understand the derivative in the abstract form when we're not talking about it on Wall Street, well, then you could definitely understand it on Wall Street. And I mean, this is kind of the thing is like when you look at coding, it is algebra. You have variables and the conversation is different. See, I started thinking about algebra and the way we call it in our system is we call it the introduction to written mathematics. And the reason why is because we introduce variables and then we kind of start talking about, can you figure out how to solve and find, you know, what would be the number in the variable? Because that seems to be the useful conversation. But really what happens is when you get to geometry or et cetera, you start having conversations like, okay, uh, call the length of the, this side X, call the length of that side Y, call the, right? And the perimeter would be if you add these all together. And those conversations make a lot more sense when you put concrete variables on the lengths. But that also happens in the computer system. It just makes more sense in the computer system for the language or the conversation to be set this variable to this value or take this input from the, from the user and make it that value. And so it all sort of boils back down to mathematics. Even marketing is primarily statistics at this point. So if you could understand statistics, if you can understand what the statistical significance means and whether you've reached it and et cetera, you can make better decisions around marketing. And ultimately, business now is so mathematically driven that we see students at the university level switching out of the business major to humanities. And by the way, ChatGPT is now writing ads for human beings. So and a million like the, the, the price, the market value for that skill set has just gone down. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So before we get into all the things changing the world, ChatGPT among them, because boy, now that you mentioned it, I might need to dig in there a little bit. But before we dig in there, let's just talk a little bit about how on earth are you helping students, 150,000 plus, get ahead of the game on a subject that seemingly most people struggle with? Well, okay. So what we do is we use adapt adaptation algorithms along with uh, the most effective activities. We focus primarily on the essential topics because there's a lot of things covered in the school where it looks like the strategy. I'm not saying this is the strategy, but it looks like the strategy is if we could just cover the same topic over and over and over again, maybe the student will get it. 
And so like, obviously, if we just cover the topic in a such a way that the student gets it, then those other topics become easy. I'll give you an example. So adding and then adding on a clock. Now, if I don't understand addition, adding on a clock is impossible. You just threw another like hoop to jump through at me. But if I understand addition, well, then adding on a clock is not a big deal, right? It's like, okay, so like I just have to understand that it's I wrap around at 12. In math, we call it modulo. And so by focusing on the essential topics and then using adaptation, we've built a system which is basically testing the student and having them figure out using problem solving how to come up with the answers, which now gives them intuition. So now say addition is the thing, right? So like, give me five things, give me four more things. And parents might've already been doing this in the grocery store with their children, right? And as society becomes more busy, maybe we're doing that less and less. But we do that in a thoughtful manner that then builds on top. So now maybe it's like uh, the same problem. We look at it from a different angle. We look at it on the number line. We look at it in different ways. The end result, uh, I like to compare to a basketball that goes up and down automatically, right? As you put the ball in the hole, the hoop goes up. As you miss, the hoop comes down. And we're always kind of keeping pace with where the student is. So we're always working kind of right around the line of their understanding. And I mean, our adaptation algorithms are a little bit better, but I mean, it's hard to convince the market on that. So we don't even talk about that, but that's kind of what it is. So how, how do you break this down so that someone can accelerate their learning that quickly though, right? You, you mentioned, I think it's a little less than two years of learning in a, sh- a few short months, right? They're, the problem is almost that you're too good at what you do, right? That, 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 yeah. That, as far as the business goes, anyways, because, you know, you, you get in, you fix the problem, and then it's, you know, how do you, how do you maintain the business, right? Because you're so good at solving the problem. So, what, what is it about solving the problem that you guys are able to do so quickly? Well, so first it's about finding their level of understanding, but then the other half of it, and I mean, I like to compare it to a magic trick, but the problem is, is a magic trick has no meat behind it. We have meat behind it. But if you were to think about mathematics as a language, and, and I have the luxury of having the context and experience of the PhD in mathematics to look at it from, mm-hmm. but if you look at elementary mathematics, it's definition, right? This is what the numbers are. This is what addition is. This is what multiplication is. And then the question is, is like, how much language does the student have, right? Because at two, three years of age, when we're starting, they don't have a lot. They have some basic stuff. So like our system starts with teaching them the numbers in the exact same way that a parent would start teaching them numbers, maybe a little bit more effective because there's methodology and thinking behind it. But I have two things. I have three things, right? And you can choose whatever things you want to talk about, cars boats. How many things do I have right now? The student has to recognize I have two things. I have three things. Give me two or three things, right? And so like if a parent wanted to be more effective, they could do it in that order. As soon as you start to see that, oh, they're answering how many question, like the the question, how many you could move on to give me, right? Like give me two, three things. Give me three things, right? That's kind of maybe the stuff the parents not doing at home. 
But ultimately, children learn language through inference, right? So I started with the two or three-year-old level because we're talking about definition, but we're talking about ideas that are so fundamental that it's very challenging for human beings to put into words, like the colors, for example. It's hard for me to describe red to a three-year-old. I can't do it. I can show them a red thing. It's hard for me to describe quantity to a three-year-old. I can show them quantities. Mm -hmm. In the same way, I can show them addition. I can show them multiplication. I can show them division. It turns out that the researchers already knew that four-year-olds can understand concepts as advanced as division. They're exhibiting it during play. But if the parents in the room, the adults in the room, the teachers in the room that think, wow, this is such an advanced topic, I'm not even going to call it division because if I do, then I don't know, somehow this kid won't understand it or will lose his childhood or it's somehow developmentally inappropriate or what hadn't, right? But at the same time, that's how we learn language. We listen to our parents. We watch them use the words in context and that's how language is learned. And so like it turns out labeling it, wow, you divided the T evenly. Great, right? That that would have then maybe eased the anxiety for so many students. But ultimately, that's the answer to the question is we're just dealing with definition. So if we just focus on definition, I can get it to you much faster. Got it. Got it. So obviously you guys have had a lot of folks sign up for it. A lot of folks use it. And I guess my main question to you is, have you guys ever tried selling this direct to the classroom or direct to school or direct to district? Any Anything along those lines that has been successful for you? Well, so we, we just opened that up. So we, we developed a classroom product. We started developing in 2019. Somewhere in the middle of the pandemic, I figured out, oh, this would be the most useful view for the teacher. So we turned into a classroom product. We've had maybe 50 to 100 teachers come through with their classrooms. And then what we did was we, we rejiggled it so that it would work for a school and then ultimately for a district because the, the district could create 20 schools. And they, we asked them to just get on the phone with us so that we know that we're talking to someone. Mm-hmm. And basically for a school right now, it's a $1,000 a year school, school-wide site license. Uh, the incentive is, is we're going to honor that price forever. So if you come in now, that's what it is. But, you know, we have room over time, potentially take the pricing up given that like they're paying a lot more for other solutions that may not be as great as the solution that we have. Yeah, it's cheap. But yeah, so like we, so the problem we that now have... That is, that is incredibly inexpensive. Yeah. And it's remediating students is the whole thing. So like the teacher can, you know, test them on week one. And by the end of the first month, typically that student's remediated and able to speak with the teacher at the classroom level and understand like what's going on. And that's that's more valuable than passing a standardized exam, in my opinion. So, so selling to schools, selling to teachers, classrooms, schools, districts, whatever you want to, you know, whatever level you're selling it academically is tough, right? And I think you, you mentioned that early on. Talk to me about some of the, some of the struggles that you're having in, in penetrating that market or that you've, that you've had that you've overcome. In, in the classroom market? Yeah. Well, we're just opening it up. So we're, we're about to just start marketing. Ultimately, we've always kind of allowed the parent to share with the teacher so that if you've got a student that like is catching up and and now you need the student 
you need the teacher to kind of wake up and recognize it. You could just share the, the reports with the teacher. And that allows the student to go into the, like if the teacher creates the account, it allows the student to go into the classroom. They could use the system there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've already had so many schools come in, but now the question is, is how are we going to market it? And so one of the biggest challenges is that everyone's got, for example, a research study. So now we need a research study. So we've put together research studies and white papers and et cetera. And now that you have that, that's not really sexy marketing. That's not going to get anyone's attention per se, right? So we're solving the problem now of, well, okay, but now how do we get in front of teachers? And typically the way I think that organizations solve this is through sales forces and and, uh, teacher training. And the thing is that like these tactics they only work for so long. Yeah. The challenge is, is that can we invent the next one? And so I haven't invented that yet. And I don't know when this goes live, but if I told you and I invented it, other people would start using it right behind me, yeah. which would shorten the time. But to be honest with you, as they see me being successful with it, they're going to rip it off anyway. So, so uh, have you had experiences with that happening before? No, I don't know, because honestly, and this is maybe a weird story to tell, but like my dad, he he used to own motels. What I remember is that like he built one in town. I was like 14 years old when that happened. But then every night, whenever we would leave the home, we would have to drive by there so he could count the cars. And then he had to drive by every other motel in town so he could count the cars. And I mean, I remember thinking how futile of a of a of an operation this was right but that's he would keep telling me that's the that's the mindset of a businessman you gotta be you know wondering how am i doing versus the competition Mm -hmm. and i just thought i was like this is so futile because you don't get anything extra by looking at what the other motel is doing you get something extra by figuring out how do I get another human being to walk into mine? Sure. And so I don't really go out there and look at the competition, but to be honest with you, I, I've clicked on shit. So, and Facebook knows who I am. Right. So like it shows up on my newsfeed and it shows up on my Google. And so like, I can see kind of what other people are doing, but at the same time, I don't even consider them competition because when I look at what they're doing, they're doing something else. They're trying to make maps fun. They're trying to replace Kumon. They're, look, I'm just trying to get your kid caught up. I'm trying to empower them with mathematics. When they come through my system, the difference between me and a tutor is that your student believes they can do it because I believe they can do it. And that's what's up. Well, and it's a methodology and a system rather than dependent on the skills of whatever tutor's being hired, right? I mean, it's, it's uh that that makes a major difference and and variability is 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 shifted to be a little bit more predictable, which is great, which is great. I think that's that's something you could say this is scientifically engineered, but that's that's buzzword well yeah, so, yeah not, <laughs> my entire audience doesn't understand that word, but but including me <laughs> but uh, but we, we engineered it based on the science, so it's scientifically engineered. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying to simplify. I'm <laughs> just messing with you, but I know. So, so, so at the end of the day, here, right? You've built, you built a business. You've, you've started B 2 C and are evolving into this B 2 B model, two schools to districts to classrooms, 
And, uh, you know, if I'm looking into your model, given how quickly you have results and, and how that might lead to potential churn of your, of your customers, right? How, how is that? First off, is that true? Does that, is your business model, you know, ultimately you're solving the problem so quickly that it's hard to keep customers. Is that accurate? Well, so we, we have a lifetime value of around three to six months. And so yeah. that makes sense because if you got the result, you maybe stick around another two, three months at some point the student gets to a place where maybe you're like let's stop or they get to the end of the curriculum we stop at about algebra we added a thing for personal finance just because i thought you know what if i like it's mathematically based if i just gave people this small amount of information like maybe they avoid massive amounts of debts especially on a credit card so many of those hundred and fifty thousand students probably won't be silly with money which i think is a good thing but yeah, I think our mission then would be to add more items back into the system. Like what I'd like to do is probability theory. What I've got here is free reign, but what I'm fighting is the system, right? The bureaucracy. The bureaucracy believes that it's very important for you to be able to solve for X. So you spend two years doing that. The bureaucracy believes that right after that, you should spot and speak about geometry for a year. And they just changed it. So that calculus is two years. I, I have a friend who's got a kid in high school. He was a high school friend of mine. And he's saying, yeah, no, now calculus is two years for high school students. Used to be one year. And it's this idea of slowing down. It's this idea of we're not going to go back and try to remediate what you don't understand. We're just going to go slower. And we're just going to make it take longer for everybody. And the end result is what they're communicating is this is hard. Mm -hmm. And it's not. And so like, I step back and I look at it and I say, well, what could I teach you that would have greater impact on your life? If you understood probability theory, then a statistics course in, in business class is not going to uh, scare you. You're going to look at it, you're going to say, well, look, I kind of understand it at a deeper level. In fact, all of this stuff makes sense. And you're going to adopt it almost immediately because you understand it. And so like probability theory, coding, you got to be able to control the computer. I guess fairly soon, maybe... The machines will be able to generate code based on human text, which would be interesting. But still, someone's going to look at it and verify, yeah, this looks like it's going to do what I want it to do and run it and modify it, right? Is every human being was able to speak that language? And it's just algebra. It's just, it's literally coding is just variables, functions, and then control functions, which are like if statements, for loops. Can you loop over a whole bunch of people and send them an email, for example, right? Okay, good, right? Between, you know, all the math, being able to do those two or three things and implement functions, well, that's algebra. That's what it is. So if I can get you to understand algebra and then I can get you to understand coding right behind that, well, now, like, maybe the conversations that you have with the computer and Google are different. And so by the time you get into college, you're looking at a different trajectory of learning that you may have made take versus before. And it happens to be, I think, a, a trajectory I live. So I think that's useful. So as part of what you're saying, Aditya, is, is that the way that you're solving how short the average customer length is because you're doing your job so quickly is by creating additional modules on top of this so that you can continue the life of the customer beyond that initial four to six months? Is that is that what you're saying? That, you're, that you have additional... We, I could start there. Yeah. Yeah. I could start there. So, okay. So that's, that's great. What else, what else are you doing to help, to help continue your relationship with customers? 
Well, so like, I mean, ultimately, like we're trying to shake hands with the customer that's going to stay longer. Is Again, right? Move, like if I got a four-year-old. Part of the move to schools and districts and so on is 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 being able to be in, in, in that level versus direct. Yeah, exactly that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's great. I mean, that's, that's brilliant. So, and then there's other products. Like we could start developing a reading curriculum. We could start looking into science curriculums. We could start, right? I mean, I think we call them different things, right? So you might have to have multiple subscriptions, but I mean, maybe it's all the same thing in the end because we'd have to build it off. Or maybe what we would do is charge for the extra courses, right? Like if you want science, when you get to a certain level within the mathematics and I can tech, yeah, I can legitimately maybe start teaching you a little bit of physics without like maybe going into the details of the derivatives. Then maybe that's what we do, right? Because... That's what the school's trying to do anyway, but they're just, I think it's being implemented in a poor manner when I see it happen. Sure, sure. You've, uh, one thing we haven't talked about is something that I know is, uh, happens at a lot of businesses with getting family involved in the business, right? And I think you and your, your wife have been involved in this for, together for a long time. How, how was that difficult having, having your significant other in the business? And, can you talk to talk to me a little bit about that? Because there's a lot of other business owners that bring or think about bringing their significant other into the business. I'll put context first, and then I'll say what the answer I think is. Some of the context is is that yeah, I think like I started this business in Ukraine, and then I was dependent on whomever. I wasn't really trained at HR type stuff. Obviously, like I got an engineering background, and at some point. Basically, what it became was I trust my wife and her family more than some random person to handle payroll, right? If I'm going to wire $30,000, $35,000 to another country for human beings that I'm paying to do work, I want to make sure that the money gets to the people who are doing the work. So she was involved with our business and she was HR, I'd say, until 2019. And ultimately, like the answer is this is the, is all of the human beings in the business have to match the culture. And the challenge is, is that the person doing the hiring has to also match the culture. Mm-hmm. And if the culture is effective, which is, that's what we do. We build effective tools for teaching children mathematics. Then we need to be able to hire effective. And that's sort of the story is that ultimately speaking, you want to hire people who want to do the job, meaning that you can describe to them, this is what you're going to do every day. And they're saying, yes, that's what I want to do. And you want to hire people then that like you want to be around. So your family is someone you want to be around. And the, the theoretical way of how this happens, maybe outside of my case, is that, well, I'd love this person to be around. And so let me try to find a job for them. That's not going to work. That's going to cause bloat in your, in your organization. You have to choose between, do I want the organization to be effective, small, lean? Do I want to support my family by giving them positions? Or do I want to support them by actually building the business in a way that's sustainable and runs and is profitable and then figure out like the profit, right? Like how can I support them? But even then, the answer is, is, if you give people money for doing nothing, they stop respecting you very quickly. So I can tell you stories about 12 years of that. 
that we could skip that. I'll just give you the answer. <laughs> no, I, you know, you see, a, you see a lot of that, right? And I, I love what you mentioned around sacrificing the value of the business for the value of what that what that small income might be to get additional money into the family short term, which is which is short term value versus long term value and and business value versus individual value. And so so I think a lot of I know a lot of founders because I have at one point too uh, struggle with that, right? Like you know wanting to put their family in the business so the the income per year can be a bit higher and not really thinking about the effects that that might have on the culture especially in critical roles like hiring people <laughs> and uh, that's uh that's 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 obviously something that you've that you've learned from was it hard getting getting family out of the business though right getting her out of the business was that like what does it was that taxing on your guys's relationship i imagine yeah yeah and i mean and it's not something that i am able to control either this is her having to accept this reality though for us we got to a point where like we weren't hiring people that speak english and i'm not able to speak with them so the job can't get done mm. but i had the great benefit of this occurring in the greatest job market in history in the united states or the world so they ended up okay and this is what i mean right like in reality you think that you're doing your family member a favor by giving them a job but in reality disempowering them by a employment and money yeah we learned this through the math like how do we empower children with mathematics and i'm just and i'm going to say that instead because it, it's going to make everything make more sense so we use the basketball analogy with mathematics meaning that if, if the ball goes in the hoop well if they answer correctly then it's like the ball going in the hoop if they answer incorrectly it's like the ball not quite with basketball everyone in the world can see did the ball go in or did the ball not go in with mathematics, someone has to look at it first, but they'll tell you the ball goes or not go in. Uh, with employment, the only person there to do that is the managers or you or whomever, right? And you got to be able to communicate. The ball went in the hoop or the ball didn't go in the hoop. Now, oh, here's where the disempowerment comes in. So with basketball, you cannot shoot for the player. There's just absolutely no way to do it. Physically, you cannot do it. If you physically start shooting the ball for the player, they're not going to believe that they can do it. Mm -hmm. So the reason why children believe they can play basketball is because they keep taking shots. The ball starts to go in more often than it does. And now they believe I can do this. The same thing is true with mathematics. They start taking shots within our system. The ball goes in. They start to believe I can do this. So now they come out confident in mathematics. Now, if I'm inventing tasks for you to do, and then you're not doing them. And now I'm doing them for you. I'm forcing the ball in the hoop. So ultimately what happens is that player comes out, and that's your family member being a player, comes out not believing that they can do anything. And so now they're afraid to go get a real job anywhere. Mm. Mm -hmm. No matter what the economy looks like. Right. Right. If my family rejects me, who will accept me? Right? I mean, that's a, it's a tough situation all around. That's, yeah, that's so you can hire family, but you're going to have to hold them accountable. And if you don't, you're disempowering them and you're the one doing it. And it's not going to feel that way when it's happening, but right. it's ultimately, that's the truth. Yeah. All right. So this, this has been super informational today. To close us off, I don't know how many of the, 
how many other episodes you've listened to so far, did you? But we always close it off with a founder five, which is five things all about your growth and the value you're adding to the world. So the first one is the top metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on. The number of years of mathematics taught, but we measured internally as much. Months. Say that one more time. The number of months of mathematics taught overall students. So like we have a dashboard and the first KPI on that dashboard is that number. So it sets the, the tone for the team. Why are we here? Empower children with mathematics. Love it. Love it. Top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. The top tip for growth stage founders like myself. You got to own the, the marketing, the sales. When you're starting, when you're growing, you got to own that process. You got to hand it to someone. Maybe once you've made it, you're going to be able to hire people to do that. But there's a lot of founders out there that I've spoken with that they don't feel that way. And I mean, I remember when I switched from Elephant Head Software to Elephant Learning. So I went from the contract software engineering firm to Elephant Learning. I said, I'm going to learn marketing. I, and I, I did not waver on that. When I hired marketing people, I, I learned as much as I could from whatever they said or whatever they did or whatever, however I could. Yeah, great. Favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow? Dirt. Oh, I love it. Other than the dirt. <laughs> podcast or book, you said? Yeah. Crucial Conversations. I really like Crucial Conversations. It's a good introduction to communication. And I think communication for teamwork is probably the most important thing because if you don't have it and it doesn't work, there's other things that people would say are important as well, but it's got to start with good communication. Yeah, that's a favorite of mine. I love Crucial Conversations. It's a great book. Probably read it once a year, actually. All right. There's a, there's a book that by the same authors called Influencer. And, and we were using that to, to build Elephant Learning. It's about, I mean, it kind of builds on top of each other. So there's Crucial Conversations, Crucial Accountability. And then I read the influencer book and, and it studies people who are building organizations that are causing change in the world and how they're measuring it and the methodologies of, of creating it. Nice. Nice. All right. What actor would play you in a movie? <laughs> uh, my cousin is Ritzy Groshin, so I'll ask him to say. What was that? Say that one more time. I'd ask him to do it. My cousin is Ritzy Groshin. He's a Bollywood actor. Oh, okay. And awesome. so like if someone's going to play me in a movie, it'd have to be him because we're related. I thought you'd never hire family again, though. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm not making the movie. That's true. Yeah, you're not producing. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> All right, last one here. What is going to be the title of your autobiography? That's a, that's a good question. I, I, I'd center it something around the truth, right? I'm still, I try to figure out like kind of more clever way to say it, but like, that's, I think ultimately what my core value is. Yeah. I remember being back in uh, graduate school and I wanted to go to graduate school for computer science. I wanted to do computer graphics. And what ended up happening was that like, I had to become a math major due to a TA switch. And then one of my buddies back at the fraternity house, he had just finished his LSAT. And he was like, why don't you become a lawyer? Like all this stuff on this LSAT, it looks like stuff that you'd, you'd be great with. And I had done speech and debate in high school. I had done it for my first year of college. And so it was not something that I was like, yeah, I could consider it. But what I had told him and then what I had kind of realized years later was that 
the difference between law and what I'd be doing in mathematics is in math, I got to make an argument and I got to make an argument that's going to convince other people who are experts in the field that the statements are true. And so like what we're actually after is truth. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I became a lawyer, eh. <laughs> <laughs> I have no other way to say it besides that, right? Like, yeah. it starts to get gray really fast. <laughs> and I mean, since then, I've had to speak with lawyers and do collections and et cetera. So, like, I understand that maybe it's a little bit, it's different than what I thought it would be at that time. And, like, I see that my skill set would be useful for law. But, yeah, I mean, the truth is bendable over there. Yeah, well, I like it. the truth. That's a good, that's a good one. All right. So you've given a ton to our listeners today, to you. Um, time for a little bit of self-promotion. How can those listening help you out? All right. Yeah. If you want to get started and get your children caught up with math, or even if you just want a refresher, just go down to elephantlearning.com and drop your email address in and uh, we'll get you started. And uh, you know what? If you message our customer support and say that you found us on the dirt, and they can give you a scholarship link so that like you guys can get a scholarship on the way in. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. I will uh, we'll include that in the show notes as well. That's that's a lovely offer for our listeners. Cool. Um, awesome. And uh, you've obviously going to just keep continuing the mission, mission of uh, changing the world and changing how children learn academics and math. I love it. This is a uh, Closing us off, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you if, if for some reason they find it in their interest to do so? If you connect me on LinkedIn and you, and you don't try to sell me something, I'll probably connect you. Well, there you go. <laughs> Love it. All right. Thank you for all that you've had to share and give and joining us on The Dirt. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me, Jim. I really appreciate it. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.